Several years ago, Aaron and I got really into this show on Discovery Channel called Gas Monkey Garage. Anybody ever watch that? If you feel comfortable admitting it, I did, so you can. Uh, we even went up and saw the garage in Dallas. That's how big of a deal we, we thought it was at the time. I love that show. Uh, the premise is basically this, this, this crew of mechanics and car detailers and all that. They uh, take these junk cars and clean out the rust, fix up the body, swap engines, do the leather interior, put the perfect coat of paint on it, and then they flip them. They sell them, see how much money they can make. And it's really cool to see how somebody could take this old beat-up vehicle and, and turn it into a, a showpiece, you know, uh, that they take to a car show, makes a lot of money. And that transformation is crazy. You know, at the end of the show, they show you the before, and they show you the after. And you get a real feel for all the hard work that was put into that vehicle. I got to think about that this week and how a lot of the reality shows on TV sort of turn on this principle. Now, there are home remodeling shows like Fixer Upper or Hometown, those kinds of things, where they go in and they take this house, they fix it up, and afterwards they celebrate the transformation. I remember this show that my, my mom and grandma used to watch when I was younger, What Not to Wear. The same kind of principle, but with fashion. Yeah, same kind of principle, but with fashion. They'd go into a person's closet, and they'd throw out all the stuff they shouldn't wear, and they'd help them figure out what it would look like to, to dress their age or for their life station or whatever. All these transformations. And each one of these shows, you know, the drama of it is, are they going to get the car done? Are they going to make the hard decisions and get rid of the clothes they love and become the person they always hoped they could be? But every one of them ends the same way. At the very end of the show, they move the bus, they roll the car out, they come out on the catwalk and do the big reveal. The transformation is complete. And this morning, I want to think about that with you because in our passage, don't we see a pretty amazing transformation? Somebody deranged and out of their mind to in their right mind to the point where people were afraid of somebody who has the ability to accomplish that. I mean, when you think about it, Jesus delivered a man from the depths of his suffering and brokenness and really transformed him into an example of a person who, who loved Christ, who, who was willing to drop everything and follow him wherever he would go. And this morning, I'm pretty convinced that if each of us will pay attention to this passage, there's something here for us. Because the transformation God wants to work in you is more than some souped-up hot rod. It's not a farmhouse chic look for your, your new place. Right? God wants to deliver you from your brokenness and send you out to declare his praise, just like he did for this man who had the legion of demons. If you haven't been with us over the past six weeks, we've been working our way through Mark's gospel, really thinking about the process that Jesus took his 12 disciples through to prepare them for the task he was going to give them. Back in Mark 3, he selects these guys by name, and he says, you guys come with me. And he, uh, Mark tells us that he did this so that it would be with him and so that he would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And so he's been teaching them all kinds of things. He's taught them in parables, and most of all, he set an example for them, what a life pursuing the kingdom would look like. And last week, we saw this incredible story where after a long day of ministry, Jesus and his disciples set out from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side, the Sea of Galilee. But while they're making the crossing, 
A terrible and violent storm kicks up, and it threatens to capsize their boat until Jesus wakes up and says, Peace be still. And like the demon-possessed man, the sea became calm. Today, we pick up in the story when they finally made it to the other side, to this predominantly Gentile region that's dominated by the Decapolis, which uh, means ten cities in Greek. And it was a, a confederation and league of ten different cities that had come together for mutual defense and economic trade. And one of the main cities was a city called Gerasa. And so Jesus shows up apparently in the region near Gerasa, the land of the Gerasenes, the people who are from Gerasa. And what does he see? Man, it would have been alarming, I think, if a deranged madman had ran up to you as soon as you set foot on dry land. But it's still pretty important for us to see. However alarming it was, it demonstrates what it means that Jesus delivers us from brokenness. In verse 3, Mark says, Immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. My Bible calls this man the Gerasene demoniac. How would you like to go down in history as the Gerasene demoniac? The luling demoniac. Okay. It has a ring to it. But this Gerasene demoniac, he, he presents to us what I can only think is one of the most vivid pictures of brokenness in all the Bible. Mark tells this story, so does Matthew and Luke. But Matthew and Luke sort of narrow it down, they truncate it. Mark includes all these vivid details to paint us a picture of this man's life. And every one of the words in his description matters. They all tell us this guy's life was miserable. When you think about it, he was socially ostracized, forced to live among the tombs. These were caves hewn out in rock. But like one way one commentator said it, he said even in life he was consigned to the land of the dead. He's socially ostracized. And because he lived among tombs, he was spiritually unclean, rendered unclean by his constant contact with corpses. He was incredibly strong. Right? Not even chains could bind him. But he was powerless against the force of evil that was within him. He was mentally anguished and deranged, crying out day and night, screaming at the top of his lungs out in the tombs. Can you imagine? This guy was in so much anguish and misery that the best thing he could think of was to cut himself with rocks. That was his way out. Now, this guy is a pitiful pathetic example of brokenness. There's almost no redeeming quality about this guy. Can't dig in the Greek or anything like that to find something that would make him uh, a person worthy of God's grace. I mean, this guy was demented, broken, a madman. And to be honest, it's hard to know exactly how to approach this topic in a sermon. I've thought about it different ways. Clearly, from Mark's angle, what he wants us to see as readers of his gospel is that Jesus is incredibly powerful. He's powerful over storms. He's powerful over thousands of demons. Next week we're going to see he's even powerful over death when he tells a little girl to get up from the dead. So you can think about it from that angle. You can think about it from the man's angle, which is kind of what I've done. He delivers us from our brokenness and sends out to, send us out to declare his praise. But you could also think of it through this lens of spiritual warfare, which is um, sometimes a little unsettling for us. I mean, most references to spirits in our culture come from horror movies or those shows on TV about paranormal investigators. 
And even when things like this come up in our church or in a Bible study, it's, it's sometimes a little uncomfortable because we know demons are real. I mean, they're all throughout Scripture. But it's hard to know exactly what demons are capable of doing in our world. Are y'all with me on that? So here's how I've kind of approached it. I take the Scriptures, and by that I mean the 66 books of the Bible, to be the perfect and precious Word of God. And so if it says something, it's on me to try to understand it. And so I've tried to understand the thousands of demons inside of this guy. The, the, so many demons that even have a name. We are legion. Okay, and this is what I think we have to remember. On the one hand, we don't want to be guilty of relegating belief in the demonic to the superstitious past. You know, we all know you're a modern person. You live in the modern world. We have so many scientific and medical advancements underneath our belt in the past 2,000 years that we have plenty of disorders and diagnoses to put this man's behavior underneath. You could go online and read all kinds of psychosomatic and mental illnesses that describe this guy's behavior. In fact, the one disorder that used to be called multiple personality disorder, but it's now called dissociative personality disorder, says that the two main ways it presents is in self-harm and suicide. So this guy's got a thousand voices inside of him telling him what to do, and he wants to cut himself. If he were to show up to a psychotherapist today, they have an easy diagnosis to give him. Lots of great medication to help. And so as a result, as modern people with these things at our disposal, we are tempted to just say, well, this guy's mentally unwell. But then Mark says he's got an unclean spirit. And so I don't want to be in the business of explaining away what the Scripture clearly says. So he's got an unclean spirit, even if his behavior looks an awful lot like mental illnesses. On the other hand, okay, that's one ditch. Stay out of that ditch. Okay, but stay out of this one too. All right, we want to recognize that demon possession is strange and rare, even in Scripture. And of all the examples of demonic possession in Scripture, this one's the weirdest. The only one where the demon's named, legion. The only one with multiple possession. There's thousands of demons in this guy. That's extremely rare, even in the world of Scripture. And so, even if it's real, it's rare. But don't you get the sense, when you read some of the headlines that come across our news sites, that the spiritual world is closer than we like to admit. I think about, I've read some articles this week. I won't bore you with the details. You probably read them too because they're really clickbaity. You're like, ooh, I got to read that one. And man, they're demented. They are bizarre and violent. I think about violence towards children. What kind of demon has to enter into a person that they kill their own children? That's crazy. There's some wicked stuff in the world that I don't think we can account for without recognizing that demons are real. And they're around there somewhere. One person living after World War II was thinking about the Holocaust. He said, from what universe beyond this one does this kind of evil arise? There's just some subhuman stuff going on in the world. When you saw this guy, that's exactly the feeling you got. This is otherworldly. Whatever's wrong with him, we want nothing to do with it. Get out there in the tombs. So the demonic is real. 
And if even, even if not every person experiences the personal possession of the demon, Scripture's clear. There's a spiritual battle going on all around us. It's inhabited by evil and rebellious spirits who seek to distort the truth and destroy every good thing that God's made. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. According to Paul, the lives of sinful rebellion that we live are downstream of Satan's work. That by nature, you and I come out with a sinful nature, something bit in on itself that wants what it wants and not what God wants. Because of that, we rebel against him and do our own thing. And Paul says, well, hey, you trace that far enough back, you get right back to Satan himself, who's at work influencing the world. You see, Satan's main work is not possessing people. His main work is keeping you satisfied with sin and blind to God's truth. That's what Satan wants for you. If he can just get you happy with your stuff, he wins. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the truth of God in Christ. That's Satan's work. That's the demonic everywhere, keeping people in the dark so they can't see who Christ is. And here comes this man, demon-possessed, no denying it. Here's... What, what you have is a heightened form of what everyone experiences. A person under the influence of their sin, controlled by Satan, taken to the extreme, turned up to 10. Because of that, it's alarming, and we have to figure out what to do with it, but it's not all that strange. I mean, after all, it's a brokenness in this guy that you and I probably have experienced to a certain extent before. I mean, who hasn't experienced anguish? and torment, felt torn within themselves over courses of actions? Who hasn't been rejected by friends and family and felt the sting? Frustration of being powerful, powerless over some terrible enemy within. I mean, it may not be a demon named Legion. There's some other options. Paul talks about him in Galatians 5. He calls them the works of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. You ever felt the pull towards one of those, but felt at war within yourself against it? That, that's the brokenness we're talking about. This guy's brokenness was off the charts. Maybe yours is a little bit farther down. But it's only different by degree, not by kind. It's the same kind of brokenness you and I experience. And so because of that, we have to listen carefully. This guy gives us a clear picture of brokenness. What's more important is the power over brokenness that Jesus brings, right? Everything about this guy led the townspeople to run away. But Jesus, looked, I mean, it looks like from my vantage point that Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee just to encounter this guy, just to bring some peace to his torment and anguish. And so... When the guy runs up to him, he bows down before him, Mark says in verse 6, and shouting with a loud voice, he says, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. You could, you could translate it this way. Swear to God you won't torture me. That's the demon's words. 
For he'd been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, as the Son of the Most High God, Jesus clearly possesses power. We've seen it. He's cast out demons before in Mark's gospel. He's healed people who were sick. He's just calmed a terribly violent storm that even experienced sailors thought was going to be the end. The demon recognizes it too. See, it's obvious in his gesture. Mark tells us he bowed down before him. This is a Greek word called proskuneo, and it's usually used to describe the gesture of a person towards someone who's more important or powerful than they are. You bow down at their feet. And it's clear the demon knows right away that this guy is something different. He's more powerful than I am. But it's also obvious in the name he uses, Son of the Most High God. The Most High God is a, a phrase that shows up in the Old Testament several times. shows up in Psalm 57, verse 2, and in Daniel 3, 26, often in context of encounters with Gentiles because it acknowledges that the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, called himself Yahweh, is more powerful than any other God. He's the greatest of all gods. This demon recognizes right away this is the son of the Most High God. We think of that as a messianic title. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. But the demon clearly means it as a divine title. He is God in the flesh. Because of that, when Jesus confronted this demon-possessed man, what was happening, it was a ground zero for spiritual warfare. Here were two spiritual beings faced off. One of them acknowledges the other as his superior. And he bows down before him. All he can do is beg. That's it. He begged him, please don't send us away into another country. See, Jesus' identity, who he is as the Son of the Most High God, dictated the terms of the con confrontation. The demons thought they could gain the upper hand on him. This was pretty common in first century exorcistic texts, that if you could get to the name of the demon, then you had a certain kind of power and authority over him. I think that's what the demons are trying to do. They're trying to preemptively say, hey, we know exactly who you are. Don't think you're going to come in here and tell us to get out of this guy. But Jesus possesses an authority and a power that's not susceptible to those kind of techniques. can't just say my name and then get power over me. It doesn't work that way. And just as the disciples had learned that Jesus' presence in the storm and his simple authority in speaking words could make it calm, these demons realized they were totally outmatched. Here was somebody in our presence speaking words that we are powerless against. And so they begged. The demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. This is a strange part of the story. I mean, multiple possession doesn't do it for you. The dying pigs, you know, Will. Can you imagine the sound of drown, 2,000 drowning pigs? Imagine what that must have been like. It's a little uncomfortable. We love animals today. We hate to see any animal suffer needlessly. From our vantage point, this was like a whole lot of suffering. Mark doesn't explain why it happened. Jesus doesn't even comment on it. The only people who seem to be concerned 
are the herdsmen whose livelihood just inexplicably took off into the sea and drowned. You know, lots of commentators believe this herd of swine were being raised to feed the Roman legions that were stationed on the east side of the Lake of Galilee. And so they'd probably been contracted to provide the Roman army a certain amount of pigs to feed all these hungry centurions. And here they were, the terms of their contract are going to come up, and there's no pigs to feed these guys. Uh, that's sure to, surely trouble. Um, and I think I came across the real uncomfortable reality of this passage back in college. I had gone to high school with a guy uh, named Jimmy, and he and I were friends in school. We went to the same church, and we ran into each other at the University of South Alabama, and we got together. I was a drummer. He was a guitar player, and he had a piano player, and we got together, and we, we jammed, played some jazz and reggae and stuff, and thought that was really cool. But in the process, discovered Jimmy had abandoned his faith. He had been raised in church, but had come to believe that, you know, God wasn't real. And so I'm sharing the gospel with Jimmy over and over and over. I told you several weeks ago that I stayed at a Starbucks until 3 o'clock in the morning one night. It was with Jimmy, okay? And I'm, I'm laboring with this dude. Man, your parents raised you better than this. You know the truth. And finally got him to agree to read a book with me. And I would read a book with him. And so I let him choose first, and I read this vile book by some atheist philosopher called The God Hypothesis, and then he read the Gospel of Mark. So we got together to discuss it, and the first thing he said to me, I said, so what would you think? What's the deal with the pigs? <laughs> and I, I'm like, man, you're missing it. What about the part in the end when he gets up from the dead, you know? But what's the deal with the pigs? And I don't know, I hadn't really thought about it much, and uh, I think I probably stumbled through it. But I think if I could go back and get another stab at it, I'd say something like this. Here's the deal with the pigs. This story tells us that the worst sinner you can imagine, I mean a person so deep in the depths of brokenness, so bound up in bondage to spiritual forces of darkness, are of infinite value to God. 2,000 pigs seems like a lot to us. They're not worth anything compared to that demoniac. I mean, the, the demon's decision to drive the pigs into the lake proves that given enough time, they would have succeeded in their efforts to kill that man. They were going to torment him until he could take it no longer, and the, knives were, the rocks were sharp enough, and he cut deep enough, and he bled out in the tombs. That was their goal. Don't mistake it. Jesus knew these aren't friendly ghosts or innocuous spirits. They were murderous parasites. They were going to drain that dude dry. And so given the options, am I going to let this person created in my image suffer to the point of death, or am I going to set him free? It was clear. Jesus had come for the very purpose of setting the captives free. And so he turned the man loose. I think I'd tell Jimmy, this story reminds us, Jimmy, that Satan and sin always work this way. One preacher said it like this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Another one said, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Might not seem like it at first, but sin costs you. Paul says the wages of sin is death. It's where it goes every time. The end result 
without fail of a life of sin is to death. You can be sure your sin will find you out. Apart from Christ and left to yourself, your sinful self, your sinful self that's downstream of Satan, you're bound to continue making destructive decisions. You're going to bring harm to yourselves and to others. See if these sound familiar. You're going to lie to your friends, to your spouse, to your parents. You're going to disobey your parents. You're going to rebel against the authorities in your life. You're going to engage in behaviors that will bring irreversible damage to your body and soul. Period. That's the only thing sin can do, is bring harm. And Paul says in Galatians 6, if we sow to please our flesh, we will reap destruction. So what's it do with the pigs? Well, I think you just get to see pretty clearly that if Satan had his way with you, he'd do the same to you and worse. Wouldn't be one pig, wouldn't be a thousand pigs, it'd be you and your whole family for generations. That's what he wants. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the deal with the pigs. That's what Satan does. So you better watch out. Then I think number two, I'd tell Jimmy, this story also tells us that Jesus is powerful over brokenness. And he came to set you free and transform you for his glory and your good. And the Bible says over and over and over that Jesus came for one purpose, to seek and to save the lost. That's what he came for. This guy was worthless to his community. He was a pariah. They wanted nothing to do with him. They sent him to live in the tombs. They tried to chain him up with chains. They tried to put shackles around his feet and legs. They couldn't figure out what to do with him. So they relegated him to the side. Jesus knew exactly what to do with him. He didn't run away when the guy fell at his feet. He spoke with him. He said, what's your name? He set him free. I mean, the whole purpose of Jesus' life was to live in such a way that he could offer himself as a perfect sacrifice to God and then offer himself to God as a sacrifice for sinners on the cross. And then in return, God raised him up on the third day from the grave so that he could give every bound up and broken person forgiveness of sins, restored life, and eternity with him. That's Jesus. That's who he is. That's what he's about. Paul says in Colossians 2 that he disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in his cross. Listen to the way the Apostle John explains it. The one who practices sin, that's one who lives in ongoing unrepentant sin, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. But the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's Jesus' whole thing. What's the deal with the pigs? Well, it shows you that people in their brokenness are of infinite value to God, so worth it that he would send his only son to set them free. That's the purpose. Because of that, if anybody today comes to Christ as this man does, falls down before him, cries out, Jesus, son of the most high God, they'll be saved. They can experience deliverance from their brokenness and complete transformation more than any car, more than any house, more than any wardrobe. A transformation from the inside out, like what Mike read for us. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old, broken, bound-up life is done away with. Behold, the new has come. 
Jimmy, have you ever been transformed like that? That's what I wish I could say. But Jimmy's not here. You are. Have you been transformed like that? Have you been delivered from your brokenness? Or are you still, in, still living in that life? There's no reason for you to live in it. Jesus came to set you free. That's the point. In a few minutes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do what this guy did and bow before him. Ask him for mercy. Before I do, I want to show you what happens after that. The story tells us Jesus sets us free, delivers us from our brokenness, and then he sends us out to declare his praise. See, after this man gets delivered, the townspeople show back up with all their friends. So you've got to come see this. All our pigs are dead. And oh, by the way, the guy called Legion is free and sitting here in his right mind. And you can imagine what that must have meant for the man. And so he goes to Jesus as Jesus is heading back to the other side of the sea. The people are afraid of him. Some guy with that kind of power has no business hanging around them. And so the man comes up to him. Mark tells us in verse 18, as he was getting in the boat, that's Jesus, the man who'd been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he didn't let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. You know, it's completely understandable that the man wanted to follow Christ. I mean, the term Mark uses, he wanted to accompany him. Maybe your Bible says that he might be with him. Is the same phrase he used back in verse 14 of chapter 3 when he said that Jesus called the 12 so that they, they might be with him. And it's a technical term for discipleship in Mark's gospel. And it's clear that in Jesus' deliverance, this man heard the call of the kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel. And he was ready to leave everything behind and follow Christ. And it makes sense. I mean, Jesus just gave this guy his life back. How is he going to keep anything from him? That everything I am, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm going to go with you wherever you want. I want to do whatever you tell me. I'm surrendered completely to your will. That's what this guy says. But Jesus didn't let him, which is interesting, right? Probably because this guy's a Gentile, and having a Gentile hanging around would be a little too scandalous even for Jesus. And so it didn't fit with his plan and his purpose, the stage of ministry he was in. But I also think maybe the mission that Jesus had for him was too important for him to go with him. I mean, you think about it. This guy didn't have any training, no discipleship process, no education. I don't even think he had any background knowledge of the scriptures. But apparently he had everything he needed to be the first missionary preacher sent out by Christ. Up to this point, he's told people to keep quiet, told the leper, don't tell anything, anybody anything that's happened. This is the first guy that Jesus actually sends out to tell people about him. He beats the disciples by a few days or weeks. You can read that in Mark chapter 6. We're going to see it in a couple of weeks. He's the first missionary that Jesus sends out. I mean, he didn't need any education. He had a personal testimony, a powerful one. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This guy was living proof that Jesus was able 
to deliver. He was able to save. So Jesus called him to be a witness to the greatness and mercy of God in delivering him. Later, Jesus would entrust this same kind of ministry to his disciples. In Mark chapter 6, he sends them out in pairs to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to have authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. Later, after the resurrection, he's going to send them out to be his witnesses. In Acts 1, he tells them, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. But you know that was the task he gave to every follower? Peter says in 1 Peter 2, speaking to second and third generation Christians, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Isn't that the story of every Christian? Maybe not in the extreme detail of this man. I mean, his brokenness was turned up to ten. But every last one of us has experienced the transforming work of Christ. He's shown us mercies like J.N. always says. How are you? Better than I deserve. Isn't that all of us? We've all received the mercy and greatness of God. You know, I heard somebody say this week, that nobody ever comes to know Christ who doesn't first know a Christ follower. You think about that. It's not like Jesus is out walking around dusty roads and trails telling people about himself. Instead, he sent out us as his witnesses. We're the people who are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's impossible for people to come to know Christ without first knowing a Christian who's able to give testimony and witness to what Jesus has done. And this man proves it. I mean, his transformation, the big reveal, doesn't end when he's sitting in front of Jesus' teaching at his feet. That's amazing. But what really happens is when he goes to his family back in the Decapolis, thought he was long gone, he's gone out of his mind, he's lost completely. And he tells them who had set him free. In church, Jesus has delivered and sent you into your circle of influence for a reason. To declare his praise. Your family needs to hear about the great things God has done in your life. That's why God delivered you. So you declare his praise. Your friends at school, y'all know this, Bella and Harley, y'all are living it out. Your friends at school need to hear about Jesus and what he's done for you. Who else is going to tell them? God put you in your place of work. Not so you can have a paycheck and buy all the things you want. So you can buy your wife all the things she wants. God put you in your occupation, in your place of work, sitting next to those frustrating people on your left and right because you're supposed to be a living, breathing testimony to the mercy and grace of God. He delivered you so you'd declare his praise. We're called to be Jesus people, bringing people Jesus. I've been turning that phrase around in my head. It's beautiful. It's, you know, boom, 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 boom. Backwards and forwards, it's the same. Jesus people bringing people Jesus. That's who we are, delivered to declare his praise. Don't we have enough to talk about? Don't we have something to say? 
And I may not be a dusty old Corvette dug out of some lady's barn. But man, I want to be a testimony to the goodness and grace of God because everything I am, I am because of his grace. Nothing's of my doing. It's all of him. He delivered me from my brokenness so that I would stand up and speak every time I'm given an opportunity, his praise, the goodness of Jesus in my life. Are you the same way? Have you been delivered from some stuff? Did you catch that big crazy list of all the things back in Galatians 5? Paul has another one in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3. He just goes on and on and on. He says, in the last days, difficult times will come upon us. People are going to be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And he goes on and on and on and on. Man, God has delivered us from some stuff. When was the last time you declared his praise? When was the last time you told somebody what Jesus had done for you? Why has it been so long? I think for some of us, we go so long between talking about Jesus to people because we've forgotten what he saved us from. We've been walking with Jesus for so long, it just seems like, yeah, I've always been a Christian. Or maybe our testimonies aren't as amazing as this guy's. And if we'd had been the luling demoniac, you better believe we'd be talking about what Jesus has done in our life. But I'm just, you know, I was raised in a Christian home, and it is what it is. But no, Jesus has set you free. And you need to get reacquainted with the salvation you've received. Maybe it's worse than that, though. Maybe it's because we're unconcerned with the end result of our neighbor's brokenness. We believe in heaven and hell, angels and demons. We believe in a God who'd give permission to demons to go into pigs and they'd drown. We don't think about what it'll be like for those who die apart from Christ and spend all eternity experiencing the direct wrath and punishment of God. If we did believe it, we wouldn't let a day go by without telling them and warning them of what's to come. So church, I challenge you to commit again to becoming a witness and a living testimony to the mercy and greatness of God. And in fact, I would even challenge you in this way. We're about six weeks away from Easter. Can you believe it? April 17th. It's going to be here before you know it. I challenge you between now and Easter to make it a daily discipline of talking to somebody about the greatness and mercy of God in your life. Now, I think you might even want to pray a prayer Maybe this could be our corporate prayer for the next 40 days. Jesus, give me eyes to see opportunities to share and give me boldness to speak. Give me eyes to see opportunities to share and give me boldness to speak. You know, you got plenty of opportunities to talk about the mercy and greatness of God in your life, but it's the boldness we lack. Let's make it a daily discipline to ask for boldness. And this morning, maybe... You can relate to this man. That brokenness isn't something I have to convince you of. You feel it. You know it. You live in a life of shame and sin. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus sees you and loves you just as you are? People may think you're difficult. They don't want to mess with you. They'd rather you just get out of their hair, go away somewhere else. Jesus is just the kind of person who sees a guy like that and runs to him. Jesus sees you as you are, and he loves you as you are. 
but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. He don't want to leave you in your brokenness. He wants to set you free. He came to live a sinless life, perfectly fulfilling God's law on your behalf. And at the end of that life, he offered himself up as a willing sacrifice so that anybody, even you, if you'll fall before him and call on his name, he'll save you from your sin. Maybe you need to pray a prayer. Jesus, Son of the Most High God, forgive me of my sin. Deliver me from my brokenness. Help me declare your praise. Jesus, Son of the Most High God, forgive me of my sin. Deliver me from my brokenness. Help me declare your praise. Even the worst sinner is of an infinite value to God. And that's true of you. This morning, don't leave this place without asking him to deliver and transform you. You have no clue what he hopes to do in setting you up as a testimony of his faithfulness, mercy, and grace. The transformation is unreal. So pray a prayer. Do what you need to do. Will you pray with me?